it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Coming to you live from New York City, the Big Apple and the worldwide headquarters of Fox News Channel in Midtown. So grateful to have you all here today and every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, and then around the clock at your fingertips, totally free of charge every day on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast and other goodies are there. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcasts.com. You can get our podcast wherever you get our podcast, which is tautological yet true on social media you can follow us at guy benson show that's twitter it's also instagram i'll be on kudlow today on fbn through the magic of television and radio but with you here for the full three hours here's the lineup peter Ducey, our colleague will be here white house correspondent just back from this overseas trip with president biden in the middle east we will talk to peter about what he saw. Maybe he can clear up a few of the controversies that have sort of lingered from that journey on Air Force One. U.S. Senator Rick Scott, who is chairman of the NRSC in this really important election cycle, he will be here in our next hour, as will Janice Dean, the weather machine. She's got a new podcast that she's starting, and it will be wonderful. She is wonderful. Plus, I want to ask her about her experience at the hot dog eating contest. On July the 4th, she was a celebrity guest judge, like an official at the event. How did that go? We will ask her. A lot to get to on the show, including woke tales, including producer Christine's birthday. That is all ahead. I would like to begin, however, on the issue that is the number one issue facing voters, and that is inflation in the economy. I saw this headline. It was on Twitter from CNN, and it had to make me just shake my head and chuckle a little bit. This was yesterday. New vulnerable Democrats are sounding the alarm over the inflation crisis. And in some of the most important battleground races in the country, the average cost of goods has increased even higher than the national average. So it's this whole story about some vulnerable Democrats up for re-election who have decided to get off their rear ends and start making sounds about the inflation crisis that they are deeply concerned about, you understand. And part of the problem is, while the national averages are terrible, 40-year highs on inflation, in some of their states and districts, it's even worse. So the pain is more acute, therefore they could be in more danger. And in this story Accompanying the headline on the tweet is a graphic featuring three photographs of three United States senators. Mark Kelly of Arizona, Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire, and Raphael Warnock from Georgia. They're all up this cycle. They're all incumbents. 
They're all vastly outraising the Republicans, by the way, in their races. Maybe we will ask Senator Scott about that later. But they all conceivably could lose in November. And a real wave night could wipe all three of them out. Right? If the wave is uneven and sort of weak or underwhelming, they could all survive. Turnout, enthusiasm, participation is going to matter immensely. But they know it could be, you know, a, a razor's edge, a knife's edge race, a coin flip in either direction. And if inflation is anywhere near this bad, it certainly doesn't help their chances. So now all of a sudden, they're out there telling journalists how worried they are, how concerned they are, wringing their hands about inflation, criticizing the White House, trying to distance themselves from the White House. And the story talks about all three of these senators and saying that this is a deepening political crisis and problems for President Biden and his party and helps explain this whole situation, why vulnerable Democrats have publicly rung the alarm about the issue. Oh, how brave. Thank you so much, senators, for ringing the alarm about the thing that is crushing everyone in this country. Thank you for that. Such leadership. Some Democrats, writes CNN, are starting to point the finger at one another. New Hampshire Senator Maggie Hassan, a vulnerable Democrat, criticized the Biden administration's handling of inflation, saying that the administration was too slow to, to react. I mean, true. It was a year ago that Joe Biden, today, a year ago today, we played the clip last week, Biden said he didn't know anyone who was worried about inflation. Oh, it was just transitory. It was minor. Don't worry about it. And then it quickly pivoted into, well, maybe it's not so minor and transitory, but it's not our fault. It's Putin. It's uh, it's greed. It's all this other stuff. Meanwhile, they're just out there cranking out trillions in new spending, proposing even more. And while CNN says that people like Hassan are pointing the finger at fellow Democrats, all three of these senators should look in the mirror and point the finger directly at themselves. Every single Democrat in Congress, except for one, a congressman from Maine, every single one of them, all their senators, all their other members of the House, voted in favor of the $2 trillion so-called rescue plan. That experts, even within their own party, were warning at the time would be wasteful and inflationary. And I know that the White House now is pretending like that's not what Larry Summers and others were arguing back then, but they were. Larry Summers, former Obama Treasury Secretary, said that the rescue plan, $2 trillion, was, quote, the least responsible macroeconomic policy we've had in the last 40 years. That's what he said at the time. The most reckless fiscal policy and macroeconomic policy he'd seen in four decades because, among other things, of the inflation threat. Stephen Ratner, a top advisor to Obama, an economist, wrote in the New York Times that the Democrats, quote, original sin on inflation was the $2 trillion in spending. That will, quote, go down in history as an extraordinary policy mistake. That's what they did. 
all of these vulnerable Democrats who are sounding the alarm on inflation, they all voted for this inflation. They were warned it would be inflationary. They were warned it would hurt the American people. They did it anyway because they're partisan hacks who vote with Biden, Harris, Schumer, and Pelosi no matter what. They just walk the plank, and now they look around, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't getting so comfortable for me politically. Let me pretend that I had nothing to do with this. They might get away with it unless voters down in Georgia, are you listening? Out in Arizona, are you listening? Up in New Hampshire, are you listening? And a few other key states, Nevada, Pennsylvania, unless voters hold these frauds accountable, they'll skate six more years or in Congress, two more years. If you feel like that's not the reward that they deserve for what they've done, then vote them out. That chance is coming very soon. Oh, and to make a point that I've made before and will continue to make, probably on at least a weekly basis from now until November. These people all voted for $2 trillion in wasteful inflationary spending for supposed COVID relief that actually didn't go to COVID relief, which is why the White House and then turned around and said, oh, we're out of money. We're out of money on COVID stuff like testing and vaccines and therapeutics. Give us more money. Because I guess the $2 trillion on top of all the other trillions of emergency spending, oh, it just wasn't enough. It wasn't allocated for, you know, COVID stuff, even though they called it COVID stuff. It was a chance to just fill up a Christmas tree with a bunch of left-wing garbage and pass it under the auspices, under the fig leaf, or PR, of the pandemic. It was a total sham, a wasteful, catastrophic inflationary scam. And then... Every single one of these people, except for Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, and one guy in the House, they all supported Build Back Better. Five trillion more dollars in wasteful inflationary spending. Seven trillion in all these people supported. In the House, they all voted for it, with the one exception. All of them, just off the plank they went, into the ocean, the shark-infested inflationary waters, every single one of them, because Pelosi said, walk, do it, do it. They said, yes, ma'am. And if not for Joe Manchin putting his hand up and saying, stop, Kirsten Cinema, along with him and Build Back Better, all the other Democrats in the U.S. Senate supported Build Back Better, including Raphael Warnock, Mark Kelly, Maggie Hassan, They want you to know how terribly worried they are about inflation. What they don't want you to think about is the $7 trillion of spending, new wasteful spending that they've supported in the last year, year and a half. And if they'd gotten their way, they got their way on trillions. If they had gotten their way on more trillions, imagine what this conflagration would feel like right now. It's not like they weren't warned. I read you the sound bites. I read you the quotes. Oh, they're, what, blowing the whistle, sounding the alarm, ringing the bell on inflation. They're worried. These vulnerable Democrats pointing the fingers at fellow Democrats. You did this. You built this. You voted for this. Don't run away from it. Stand up and be like, hell yes, I ordered the code red. 
they would all do it again. They would all do it again because ultimately it's expanding the government and spending more of your money with then more excuses down the line to raise your taxes. That is the beating heart of the Democratic Party. That and abortion. So not so much of a beating heart there. By the way, one more point. This is a different piece, not the CNN story, but this is an op-ed in the Washington Post. Actually, it's a columnist from one of their columnists. It's a column, there we go, from one of their columnists. I had not heard of him before, Perry Bacon Jr. He wrote a whole piece. And it's actually been a few of these that I've seen. People just like, you know, leave Britney alone, but for Joe Biden. It's just life is so unfair for Joe Biden. And people are so hypercritical in this particular iteration of that whiny, whingy, totally unconvincing argument was about the media. This columnist at WAPO is criticizing the media, the news media, for being, wait for this, too anti-Biden. He says, the mainstream media has played a huge, underappreciated role in President Biden's declining support over the past year. Its flawed coverage model of politics and government is bad for more than just Biden. Of course, he says it's bad for democracy. Because anything that annoys a liberal is just an attack on democracy. That's how it works. He talks about how Biden's numbers really started to tank during the Afghanistan debacle, which he says, quote, closely tracked the media's hysteria. Really? Hysteria? We could see people falling off of airplanes. Thirteen of our men and women were blown up by terrorists. We were leaving billions of dollars of powerful military equipment behind for the terrorists to take over. We were leaving Americans and allies behind, breaking the promise. And this guy's like, wow, the media coverage of that was so hysterically bad. It's not fair. And it hurt Biden. Because Biden is in such bad shape, he writes, in my view, media coverage is a big factor in those warped polling results. He says, yes, I am calling for the media to cover Biden more positively. He's like, propagandize harder, you guys. That's his big message to the media. I don't know what kind of drugs you need to be on to have lived through as a sentient human being the last, let's say, six years of our politics and come to the conclusion that the media is just too hard on the Democrats. And yet a lot of progressives actually believe that, which is amazing. No one else does, but this is like a piece of doctrine on the left, that the corporate media is too fair to Republicans and too negative toward Democrats. I mean, these people would melt into little puddles if they were Republicans. You see how they covered Donald Trump or even George W. Bush? Or just name any Republican out there, Mitch McConnell, all the way on down. If these people had to face the onslaught of negativity and hostility from the activist left-wing press on a daily basis, they would lose their minds. They already think they're victims of the media. It is deranged and delusional, which is why I think they're losing. There's no grasp on reality anymore. And when there is at least something of an understanding of reality, like on inflation, they're like, oh, who, who, us? Oh, we don't like this. We're sounding the alarm. 
And the columnist over here, stop being so mean to Grandpa Joe. Yes, I said it. Cover him more positively. Just waving the pom-poms, but no one's cheering along. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Peter Ducey coming up in the next segment. You've seen the White House, some of their talking points the last few days, just high-fiving themselves on gas coming down price per gallon, even though it's still astronomically high, well north of four bucks, still five plus dollars in a lot of areas. But because it's down X number of cents in the last couple of weeks, they're like, aha, see, you're welcome. What happened? Did Putin get nicer? Did the oil companies they were blamed, did they get less greedy all of a sudden? Like uh, is greed on a summer vacation real quick? I thought they told us that the president has no control over gas prices. I guess when they go down, then he does. (laughs) By the way, then what happens if this occurs? Headline from The Washington Post. Gas prices may surge again ahead of midterm elections. Quote, drivers relieved by the recent dip in gas prices may be in for a shock when the summer winds down, with energy analysts warning a fresh round of price surges could emerge as soon as October. Ooh, October. If that were to materialize, then what? Corporate greed, oil companies' greed is back. Putin got bad again. Biden got powerless again. How will they spin that? Meanwhile, another flashing red light on the R-word recession from Fox Business. Copper suffered its worst weekly plunge since the early days of COVID. The metal, a major component in electronics and motors, is often used as a bellwether of economic well-being. Copper has officially entered a bear market as of the end of June, which is an occurrence that has preceded each and every recession for the last 30 years. So if you're tracking recession, that's another warning sign and a concerning one. See who they blame that one on. Certainly not themselves. Their policies, their their failures, never perish the thought. That'll be up to voters to deliver that accountability. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here with all of you on the Guy Benson Show from New York City today. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free every day on demand right there. GuyBensonShow.com. And with us now is Peter Ducey, Fox News Channel's White House correspondent. He is now back 
home, stateside, having traveled with the president over to the Middle East. And Peter, it's good to have you back. It's good to be back, guy. Thank you. Let's talk about Saudi Arabia, my place of birth, which is a fun trivia answer. I'm trying to still wrap my brain around exactly what did and did not happen on this trip because we're getting different accounts from different people. And I'm not here to say that I trust the Saudi regime over the U.S. government necessarily, but there are at least disputes about, number one, did the Saudis agree to something on pumping and producing more oil? And then, two, was there some sort of a confrontation on Khashoggi and human rights and the murder of that journalist It doesn't seem like we are getting uh, similar answers from the two sides. And that little back and forth, the sniping has continued even after the president left Saudi Arabia. What can you tell us? Well, it mostly happened uh, right as the president took off. So the Saudis waited until the president was unable to respond right away. uh, And they came out to say, yeah, we never heard him bring up the murder of Khashoggi. And uh, yeah, we uh, I'm not so sure that I heard him bring up oil production when he had all the Gulf leaders in the room either. And those are both things the president uh, suggested or basically said that he did. And so uh, I, I tried with the press secretary yesterday. She was not in any of these meetings, so she didn't hear uh, with her own ears any of this, but she did say that uh, we should just trust the president here. Okay, so the official line from the president is he did condemn the Saudis for the killing of Khashoggi, and he did secure some assurances on oil production from the Saudis. That's what he is. That's the line from the White House, yeah. Okay. Is there significance if the Saudis say Neither of those things happened. Some of that could just be posturing. Some of it could be trolling, for example, on Khashoggi. Maybe he said something and they're like, oh, we didn't hear that because they didn't want to hear that. Maybe it was said and they're pretending otherwise. But the oil piece of it certainly seems to be pretty important because that was kind of the whole point of the trip, right? You're not going to show up to the so-called pariah state that you'd called out very aggressively, vociferously on the campaign trail, fist bump the guy that you said has blood on his hands, the pariah himself, if you will, all for nothing. You you want to get something out of it. And the Saudis are saying what you came here for, we didn't agree to. That seems newsworthy. I, I guess, when will we know who's right? Well, we already know that the Saudis are saying, hey, we're already at, they, they, more or less, you know, if you piece together what MBS announced publicly, uh, he said, we're almost at maximum capacity right now with our oil production capacity. We can go up to maybe 13 million barrels a day. They're at 12 million barrels a day now. But that's it. And that's something that we know President Biden had whispered to him at the G7 right. in the Bavarian Alps like two weeks ago by Macron. And so uh, maybe that is uh, a hard thing for the president to hear, but he had to have known that it was coming. And so uh, it's going to be time to look elsewhere. We know that there are lots of places in the in the country. I know a lot of Republicans want the president to look here in the United yeah, States inward. for answers. Right, inward. Uh, but it doesn't seem like Saudi Arabia is going to solve all the problems, if they can solve any, if they want to. Uh, because the other thing is when MBS says, oh, yeah, we can expand uh, up to 13 million 
a day. Uh, that he doesn't. He, he never said that they would do that right away, and they've had a plan to do that over the next couple of years for a long time. Uh, we never heard him say that they were going to speed it up just to do Joe Biden a favor. I guess we shall see. Meanwhile, there is the Israel swing on the trip. How can you describe that, Peter? Because uh, we recall that there was a pretty icy relationship between President Obama and the Israelis, and then a much, much warmer relationship with President Trump. The Abraham Accords, those peace deals were huge. Now you've got President Biden, who in this respect is still more of an old school Democrat. It seemed like that was relatively low drama. The Israelis and the Saudis and the U.S. all have an interest in countering Iran, although the U.S. seems much more interested in appeasing and offering concessions to Iran than the Israelis or the Saudis and and some of their Arab partners. How do you categorize that portion of the trip? Any news in your mind out of that? Well, I think the news is that uh, the president went there and, uh, you know, when we're there covering these trips, we're trying to figure out what what is happening. Like, what's the point of any of this? And as the president was standing in the West Bank, he said, I, you know, I realize now that uh, the ground's not ripe for peace talks. And it's like, then why are we here? I know they want to talk about Iran, but you're not going to come to the Middle East and at least uh, try to get all sides to the table uh, to negotiate. And I know that uh, a deal, any kind of a peace deal is a long ways off, but you're not going to go and at least like try. Yeah. And so I, I think that the newsiest thing wound up being something that did not happen, which is uh, just no announcement about anything. <laughs> yeah. It's so so the news was a pointed lack of news, although growing concerns about Iran, they're now saying some members of their regime that they have the ability to build a nuclear weapon if they want to. Uh, that was the concern all along. Obama's nuclear deal was not going to stop them from doing that. Biden's rumored deal that has never gone through was even weaker. So that's another space that we're keeping an eye on for sure. Meanwhile, Peter, the president hops back on Air Force One, flies across the ocean and comes home to a very turbulent political situation for him. The polls are terrible. People are very unhappy. Inflation, gas prices, I mean, you name it, things are just racking up. He's got approval ratings in the 30s. Right track, wrong track is even worse, I mean, by by a long shot. And I've been kind of interested, and I touched on this earlier in the show, Peter, by the White House and sort of their spin team, the communications shop, in the last few days, trying to really lean into some uh, some credit taking, some triumphalism or getting close to triumphalism on gas prices because they've come down. They're still shockingly elevated and much, 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 much higher than when this team took over. But because they're not as high and the national average is no longer over five dollars a gallon, they're like, you know, breaking out the champagne bottles and celebrating and basically demanding credit and gratitude from the American people. And I'm just trying to square that and the memos that they're putting out and what they're saying from the podium, trying to square all of that with their repeated assertions over the last couple months that the president has no control over these things. It's not fair to expect him to be able to move the price of gasoline and that really the driving factor is Putin and greed of oil companies. Did, did did that go away? Is there a summer holiday from the greed? Did Biden somehow 
find a magic wand where he can bring stuff down? And will the magic wand get broken in half and then disappear if they come back up? I'm just trying to figure out how they will explain some of this stuff, the gyrations, based on their own standards that they've been using. Well, now they're saying, uh, yeah, Putin was terrible, uh, and he still is, but uh, we released some oil from the strategic reserves, and we told those those mean old gas station owners that they need to lower their prices. <laughs> right. And so, so they did, I, you know, right. Yeah. So they did. So, so now, now we're in control. I call it a magic wand if you want. Um, but Kate Benningfield, the communications director has a memo out today where she says right there in plain text, president Biden's plan is working. And so, you know, just because they say that, uh, I guess it's up to the, the serious economists that, uh, said inflation was going to be temporary 365 days ago uh to to weigh in on that but i i don't know I, it's, you know it's tough because we get back from these trips and you want to hear more from the president but no public events yesterday and no public events today like yeah, while an all empty schedule fresh, yeah we want to know from him and it's great that they had Corrine Jean-Pierre go out, and she's got John Kirby with her today at the briefing. Um, she had Jared Bernstein with her yesterday. That's great. But we want to hear from the president so that he can explain, like, what's going to happen next? Because, okay, gas is down a little bit over 30 days in a row. Good trend, but it's got a long way to go. Long way. Uh, so what else are we going to do? Yeah, just and, to— just to break even to where they were when they came in on gas prices. And I was just quoting a Washington Post story, Peter, in the last segment, where some of the experts in the industry say that in September or October, you could see an increase in gas prices again. So sort of like a second shockwave. If the plan is working, will the plan have just been put on pause? I just think this is, it seems so transparent in its sort of spin and flailing nature to try to just sort of latch on to anything that might be good and try to say we did that, but anything past, present, or future that will go in the opposite direction or go sideways, that isn't us. We didn't do that. Take that somewhere else. I just don't know if that really works with almost anyone. Well, it's interesting because it's almost like they don't want full credit. They want people to know that like they know what they're doing and if they want to lower gas prices they ultimately can but it's like they don't want full credit because you know in your left ear they're telling you look at all these uh lower prices now but in your right ear like tomorrow we're going to go to massachusetts and he's going to give a big speech about climate change and so he he doesn't want to upset anybody that's trying to end fossil fuels or that thinks that he still wants to end fossil fuels, which he promised to do. Um, so it's like they kind of want to keep any any progress on the down low on this one issue, which is a very complicated thing to kind of wrap your head around. Meanwhile, Peter, you had a bit of an exchange with the press secretary about something that the vice president said. Kamala Harris was speaking at the NAACP, and she tried to basically – argue that abortion is intertwined with the civil rights movement. And she compared limitations on abortion to slavery, saying that this isn't the first time our country has claimed ownership over human bodies. And I've seen a few people pointing out the military draft would be an example. Is this ownership over human bodies to limit 
abortion in certain ways. I know a lot of pro-lifers actually make the opposite comparison when it comes to depriving innocence of liberty for no good reason, uh, or in this case, in abortion life. If that is the argument they want to have, I think there's very much a potent other side to it. But what Harris said is basically comparing any pro-life measures to slavery, which is going to be very controversial. Uh, I personally think it's a ridiculous point. I find it offensive. Other people might want to agree with it. You wanted to know whether the president agrees with what his vice president said. A little bit of a back and forth here in Cut 25. Let's listen. Does the president agree with her that the recent Supreme Court decision on abortion access is similar to slavery? I have not seen her comments. I would like to see her comments for myself before. We know NAACP that our country has a history of claiming ownership over human bodies. And today, extremist so-called leaders are criminalizing doctors and punishing women from making health care decisions for themselves. Well, she is correct. Today's decisions are criminalizing doctors um, and essentially taking the rights away from uh, women. So the president agrees. For me, I I appreciate you reading out what she said. I need to actually see exactly uh, what was uh, uh, what was uh, what was said and in what in what complete context. All right, Peter. So I listened to that and it sounds to me like, you know, you read her the verbatim quote and maybe she doesn't trust you to be giving like a fair context. I doubt that's the case. I think she hadn't heard what Harris said, maybe wasn't prepared for the question, didn't really know what the official line was on this. Are we going with abortion limitations equal slavery as the, you know, the formal position of the Biden administration? So she was kind of putting you off to go back and consult with her superiors and figure out if that's sort of a, a, a wild line that they're going to actually embrace or kind of distance themselves from. That's my interpretation of the way she handled that question. Do you think I'm on to something or did it feel different in the room? So I've been thinking a lot about this. I think you are on to something because at the same time that Joe Biden is this person who wants everybody to think that as president, He's going to lower the temperature and put away the harsh rhetoric because that's what he said. Uh, Comparing Republican ideas, conservative ideas to slavery is right out of the Biden playbook. And all you got to look back to is in 2012, talking about Mitt Romney, and he said he's going to unleash Wall uh, Unchain Wall Street. He's going to put y'all back in chain. And the undertone was clear then. That was 10 years ago. And so we haven't heard the president make a comparison between the Dobbs decision and slavery, but we have heard him compare Republicans and uh, and Republican ideas to slavery generally. And so um, well, and he also, Peter, don't forget, just a few months ago, he said that if you don't support the Democrats crazy federal election takeover bill. He compared those people, the opponents, to supporters of Jim Crow and Bull Connor and segregationists and Confederates. So, I mean, he goes down this path. I do find it interesting coming from a guy, at least on the issue of abortion, who used to be against Roe versus Wade, used to be against public financing of abortion, used to be against late-term abortion. That was for much of his career. And he has 
devolved away from those positions because that's what it's, I guess, what is required with the abortion lobby. If you want to be a, a national Democrat and have a chance at national office, that's what you must do. So he's done it, but it's not that long ago that he held some positions that I guess his vice president is now comparing to slavery, which is super classy stuff. Peter, I look forward to more of your questions for this White House, maybe to the president himself at some point, if he decides to show up, ask questions or answer questions, do anything on his public schedule, a couple days off, recovering from that trip, it seems. Peter Ducey, White House correspondent here at Fox News. Always enjoy it, Peter. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Guy. We will step aside. Be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. Senator Rick Scott of Florida coming up next in our middle hour. First, a couple of updates on stories we've been following. That bodega murder charge here in New York City where a bodega worker stabbed an attacker. He was being attacked. His life was clearly at risk. He stabbed the guy and he died. That worker engaged in self-defense was thrown into Rikers Island and charged with murder. That murder charge has now been dropped. So that travesty of justice, at least for now, has been mitigated or eliminated. We will continue to follow that story. But at least that happened. And then in Uvalde, Texas, we're getting a lot more information from these reports after investigations into what did and did not happen during that school shooting. So much of the footage from the body cams and the hallways are just blood boiling and galling and the acting police chief in the city has been put on leave the chief of the district police who had another position that he was elected to he's now out of that position we know that there were 400 officers on scene and they did nothing for so long and the shooter was such a red flag his nickname was school shooter oh that story just keeps getting worse From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Live from New York, it's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern or on demand whenever you want it for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow swings up today in a big way, closing in the green, up 754 points, ending at 31,827. And joining us now is U.S. Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida, and he is chairman this cycle of the National Republican Senatorial Committee in charge of winning back the upper chamber in the midterm elections. And, Senator, welcome back. Guys, it's great to be with you. Um, yeah, we've got to win back the majority. We've got to you know, take control of what's happening in this country right now. I mean, this record deficits, uh, record debt, uh, open border, you know, it just inflation. It's just it's hurting, hurting, hurting American citizens all across this great country. On the point of inflation, we played this clip last week, and here it is today, precisely the one-year anniversary 
of President Biden going on CNN and saying this a year ago, cut 26. We also know that as our economy has come roaring back, we've seen some price increases. Some folks have raised worries that this could be a sign of persistent inflation. But that's not our view. Our experts believe, and the data shows, that most of the price increases we've seen are, were expected and are expected to be temporary. Temporary. Now, that was not the CNN appearance. There was a separate appearance on CNN where he said right around this exact same time last year that nobody he knows was worried about inflation, including Larry Summers, which was not true. Summers had been warning about inflation for months at that point. But we're at the one year anniversary here, Senator, of Joe Biden making these statements and offering these assurances to the American people that turned out to be absolutely painfully wrong. Well, he ought to fire all those people. I mean, anybody that gave him that advice is foolish. I mean, when you have reckless government spending, which is exactly what's going been going on up here, uh, look at this, the unbelievable amounts of money the Democrats continue to spend, and they want to spend more. I mean, I mean, this is. I mean, you should fire all those people. Let's take it. Let me give you an example of how it's impacting people in Florida. If you look over the last twelve months, the average household in Florida, their cost. It's up $772. That's after-tax dollars, $772, $9,000 a year. Now, guy, as you know, I grew up in public housing. I watched my mom struggle to put food on the table. That's what's going on across my state. It wasn't happening when Trump was president. We had record unemployment. People were back to work. Wages were growing. Now wages are growing slower than inflation. I got people that were retired going back to work. I got people think about retirement, but not retiring. I got people going to food banks. I got people taking second jobs because the Democrats and Joe Biden can't put two and two together and say, hey, you know what? If we don't balance our budget, if we waste all this money, we're, not, oh, we're going to cause inflation. Oh, well, then we'll just spend some more money to give it to people because that'll, that'll help them. That's exactly what they keep thinking. It's just going to cause more and more inflation. It makes you mad at what they're doing to families all across my state. Well, and here's the thing, Senator Scott, at the top of the show today, about an hour ago, I was reading from a story, a CNN.com story, featuring three U.S. senators, colleagues of yours on the Democratic side, Raphael Warnock, Mark Kelly, and Maggie Hassan. And the headline was something like, Vulnerable Democrats Sound the Alarm on Inflation. And it was them sort of worrying about inflation and saying that they don't like how the White House has been handling it and sort of trying to distance themselves from the problem. These are three of the most vulnerable Democrats, beatable Democrats this cycle, and they're kind of trying to pretend like their own votes, along with their party line on virtually every single thing, their support for $2 trillion in wasteful so-called COVID spending that was inflationary. They were warned it was inflationary. They voted for it anyway. And if not for Joe Manchin, all three of them supported Build Back Better. That would be $5 trillion more trillion in new spending on top of all of it. I don't know where these people are looking to cast blame, but as I said in the last hour, they should look in the mirror. They are, they have fueled this with their own votes, and I feel like they just don't want voters to make that connection. And I think it's your job and the Republicans' job to make sure that connection happens. Well, it makes you mad because they just they keep wanting to vote for more money. They have this new new um, Build Back Better. They've got they've got this so-called Chips Bill, which is just a free giveaway. Uh, and with no accountability, I mean, it doesn't stop. I mean, they just throw money, throw money, throw money, and say, well, gosh, we've got inflation. I wonder how that happened. 
So right. yeah, it's for TV that they say these things, and then they walk right next door to the Senate chambers and vote for everything that Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden want. That's right. That's exactly right. I want to also play for you a soundbite. This was just from today. This is Amos Hochstein, who's one of the big energy guys over in the Biden administration. He was on another network talking about oil, talking about energy, and he kind of said the quiet part out loud that underscores a lot of the Republican and conservative arguments about the whole mindset here that's behind a lot of these high energy prices. This is what they believe, cut 29. So it's about making a choice between what is the short term and the medium term so that we can make sure we have enough oil and gas to support us through the transition. And what are the kind of steps that we don't want the oil and gas industry to take that would have long term consequences when we don't want uh, new major projects that would take 20, 30 years to, to become profitable. So we have to make that differentiation to make sure that the American consumer has what it needs to grow to gl- grow our economy and the global economy, but not take steps and endanger the climate uh, work that we're trying to do to make sure that we're on a better footing to accelerate the transition. All right, senators. So they're basically saying we want the best of all worlds. We want our cake and to eat it too. We want the oil industry doing what we want them to do, so that all this pain isn't so bad right now. But we also don't want them making any big long-term investments in new projects because. They maintain their position. They want to put the fossil fuel industry out of business. You're a business guy. How does that signal actually work to industry in the real world? Well, guy, when you know people, when you know your government's against you, you don't invest dollars. It's real simple. It's like the Democrats hate poor people. I mean, look at what they're doing to poor people in this country and people on fixed income. They're saying, well, we don't want you to drive a car. Unless you buy, unless you have an electric car, like one of, the, one of the Democrat senators up here says, I don't have a problem. I drive an electric car. And guess what? She gets her electricity for free in the Senate. So she doesn't have a problem. But poor people and people on fixed income, you know, they can't afford their gas now. And it's because the Democrats are crazy enough to believe that we shouldn't be energy independent. We should all go to some, some, something that has still doesn't work. It's not, it's not efficient. And by the way, our own gas industry, is the most efficient, the, the cleanest in the world. That's and they right. want to go to Saudi Arabia and, and Iran and Venezuela and get oil from them, which is clearly not as careful. I mean, it's just the stuff that you think about this, whether it's the border, whether it's taxes, whether it's inflation like the Democrats, you, they just hate poor people. Well, they hate, hate people like my mom because they would have all they would have done is hurt her her entire life. And she was a Democrat. Senator, I want to ask you a question as you take a step back and look at the midterms. We're a few months out from this election. Everyone's expecting the Republicans to win the House. The Senate is a big question mark. I want to ask you about some of those races, but just broadly, and I don't want to make this about any one guy. You know, people will say this is a Trump question. To some extent it is. But just in general, there's been some buzz about at least one, maybe more, people who are considering running for president in 2024 announcing their intentions on that front before the midterm elections of 2022. As NRSC chairman, you're focused on 2022. Do you think that Republican presidential candidates, potential presidential candidates in the future, should be announcing anything about 2024 before November? I don't think it matters. I think this election is going to be about the Biden agenda. Um, It's all going to be about, you know, guys' races are about today and how you're going to impact my family. So, I mean, this election is about 
inflation, inflation, inflation. It's going to be about critical race theory. It's going to be about defunding the police. It's going to be about, you know, you know, gas, food prices, things like that. That's what the election is going to be about. There's going to be a lot of people, I assume, that you know, looking at what, what they're going to do there. But here's the way I look at it. We have good candidates. We have really quality candidates. Um, the Biden numbers are crumbling. We've got good enthusiasm on our side, during balance on our side. So it's really comes down to fundraising. If we can raise our money, if we can raise our money, the Democrats really are doing a good job fundraising. Yeah, that, that was my next question. Are, are you worried about that? Because the Dems, look, they're the big they're the big spending, big money in politics party. They pretend that they hate money in politics. They love it. They're better at it than the Republicans. They're raising money hand over fist from all their big, rich donors. And you've got Republican nominees even in big states like Ohio vastly trailing in the money race. And you look at the most important races around the country, Democrats aren't leading by a little bit in the money game. They're leading by a lot in the money game. Do you feel like that's going to come around? Are you worried that maybe some Republican donors are a little complacent about the midterms because Biden is so unpopular? Uh, what are your thoughts on the money game and how important that's going to be ahead of November? More money. You know, we, we have to raise more money. You know, at the National Republican Central Committee, we've had record fundraising. Um, you know, 99% of our donors now are under $100. dollars. We've really, we've really uh, done a really good job. But every every candidate's got to do it. You look at you look at the Democrats that we're running against that don't, you know, didn't have primaries. I mean, they've got some pretty good war chests. Kelly, Warnick. So what has to happen is, you know, J.D. Vance, you know, Herschel Walker, Mehmet um, Oz. You know, they all have to. They really have to really. Do be good fundraisers, and we. I, I tell people, you know, help us. I'm going to do. I'm going to be involved in as many states as I can do it. You can text WIN to five five four zero four and help us. But we've got to raise our money. We got great candidates. The you know the environment's good for us. Uh, generic ballots good for us. Enthusiasm's good for us. But we have to raise money. We have a minute left. As you look at some of those races around the country, and you boil it down to maybe five or six states, net net, based on where things stand right now. You might have rose-colored glasses. You're NRSC chairman. You, you know your job is to be optimistic to some extent. Do, what's your level of confidence that the Republican Party will win back the United States Senate in November? I believe we're going to win back. I, I believe we're going to win back uh, the Senate. It's going to come down to Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, New Hampshire, Colorado, and Washington. That's 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 the, all the competitive races. All right. And I know we are covering a lot of them very closely here. I see that John Fetterman in Pennsylvania has got Elizabeth Warren coming in for him. I don't know if he'll be there. He's been off the campaign trail basically completely with some health issues. Elizabeth Warren is not exactly, uh, you know, Pennsylvania friendly, uh, certainly not Pennsylvania energy friendly. So that's an interesting choice. He's a progressive guy. There are big vulnerabilities from these Democrats. Uh, and, and if there's enough money out there to get the message out there, I think the Republicans do have a real shot, as you point out. Senator Rick Scott, chairman of the NRSC, United States senator from Florida. Senator, always appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Talk again soon. Have a great day, Guy. Bye-bye. You too. And we'll be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. A lot to get to here, including later this hour, our colleague and friend, Janice Dean. You don't want to miss that. It's all straight ahead. I'm Guy Benson, back here on the show. We mentioned yesterday that some jurisdictions in this country are either flirting with or outright announcing that they are preparing to reimpose COVID mandates such as mask requirements. Los Angeles County, for example. The rumor and the reporting has been that they're going to reimpose a mask mandate 
based on high circulation of the virus. But not for another couple of weeks, which, again, just explain that science to me. They're saying, oh, there's so many cases right now. The transmission rate, the positivity rate is concerningly high. So here comes a mask mandate down the line. We'll get back to you in a week and a half or two weeks. And by the way, just like the small little detail, as David Leonhardt at the New York Times has reported in depth based on the data, mask mandates don't work. Wearing a high-quality mask yourself can be helpful if that's the choice that you make in terms of reducing the likelihood of transmitting the disease or contracting it. But mask mandates writ large, even in the most compliant areas, from the most authoritarian, busybody governments at the city or state level, they don't work. And you compare community spread in places without mask mandates versus with mask mandates in the United States, and there's no statistical difference at all. We also know that mask mandates in schools, especially for young children, not only don't work, they also have actively harmful elements to them established downsides for certain students in particular. And yet in San Diego, California, some of the worst things come out of California, almost without fail. San Diego School District, which had a big woke thing, I think renaming schools not long ago, we talked about that. They are now going to reimpose a mask mandate in San Diego schools. That according to district officials. And it doesn't matter, apparently, what the data shows, what the science says, what the real-world outcomes have been in the United States and all across the world. They want this little magical religious totem of masks to be required as slapped on the faces of young children just to show how much they love the science and how seriously they take the disease, even if their actions actually undermine the science. And do nothing for safety and do not, in fact, convey seriousness. This type of requirement conveys a lack of seriousness, in fact. Now, in an interview, the president of the school district, whose name is Sharon Whitehurst Payne. She was on local television and she was asked, "Okay, what about if there are parents who are uncomfortable with their kids wearing masks, don't want their kids wearing masks? A lot of parents have very good reason to have those objections. Well, she has a solution, if you want to call it that, in Cut 27. Parents who, who don't want to wear a mask indoors in school, are there any other options for them? For the fall, there are some options. They can go to our uh, school that's online. Um, they can opt not to return to the regular school, but to go to the school where they don't have to go to school at all other than via Zoom. And um, that's the easiest way for folks. What about the summer school? What if they were already enrolled in the summer school and now they get this mask mandate and they're not comfortable with wearing a mask? They really should wear the mask. But if they're not not comfortable, what should they do? They should just let make it known that they don't feel comfortable. And at that point, just not return. Don't show up. Don't come to school. If you're in summer school, you need help, and you're a little kid, you don't want to wear a mask, your parents don't want you in a mask, well, too bad, get out, don't show up. I guess you're just not welcome here without your mask, no matter how badly you might need the instruction. And then in the fall, it's like, oh, well, Zoom. It's just Zoom classes again. 
Back to virtual learning. Have we learned nothing? Apparently the answer in far too many places, the bluer the place, the likelier the lack of learning apparently on this has been. There are clear lessons being actively ignored by adults in charge. And you wonder why school choice is taking off. Private schools, homeschooling. Why have these people running a monopoly for children who can't escape their grips? It's not fair. It's not just. It's not equitable. More on equity, by the way, in the next hour. But we've got a break on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, halfway through today's program. Thank you so much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. And with me now here in studio in New York City, and apparently she didn't know that I was here. Otherwise, I would have gotten here earlier, and I would have brought snacks. (laughs) A very warm welcome from, and now to, Janice Dean, senior meteorologist here at Fox News, New York Times bestselling author of several books, including Make Your Own Sunshine, and now the proud proprietor of a brand new podcast here at Fox News, which you can find at foxnewspodcast.com. It's the appropriately named eponymous Janice Dean podcast. <laughs> All right, Janice, tell us about the podcast. My guess is it's going to be a lot of anger and resentment <laughs> and grievance knowing you. <laughs> The Cuomo part, maybe. (laughs) No. Listen, it's going to be sort of what I do on the Dean's List every day. You know, a good news story uh, that makes people happy. That's what I want to do with the podcast. I also want to take you back to find out what goes on behind the scenes of Fox and Friends and, of course, some of the other programs that you love to watch on Fox News because the personalities behind the camera are very interesting. And so I want to kind of peel back some of those layers, Guy, and you're going to be somebody that I would like to have on my podcast oh as boy. well. Yes. Well, I heard you had Kill Me, so... It, listen, we started off, and I thought I was only probably going to have like 15 minutes with him. We ended up going an hour because he's very private. And I get that, right? Like he's got his family, he's out on Long Island, but he does the news. And when you get like a tiny tidbit here and there during Fox and Friends, like when he makes his wife Dawn clear the driveway when it's snowing out, that's when I really, I'm like, oh, I got to find out more about that. You perk up. Exactly. I have follow-ups. Yes. So that's kind of what I tried to do. Listen, he tried to bob and weave and dodge a Mm -hmm. lot. But we did get some good stuff. Oh, you're going to get answers. Yeah. Janice Dean gets answers. Mm -hmm. So he was sort of my first guinea pig, and I think it went quite well. Do you have any other people lined up that you want to tell us about just to sort of tease as people start easing into the warm waters? Well, you and I have talked about it because I have something very exciting coming up in my life that we're going to talk more about that you had a great deal to do with. Yes. And that's a big tease. Yes. I'm so excited (laughs) for all of that, although you did promise – us the exclusive when it happens. Oh, that's true. Maybe we could do a simulcast. Great. But we'll do. I'll do your show first, and then the podcast will we'll follow drop up. in more detail. Probably. I love that idea. All I right. love it when it comes together. Exactly. Especially we're like doing real time negotiation right here <laughs> at the table in the studio here in New York. Janice, I do want to ask you just one more thing about the podcast. 
you mentioned the Dean's List, which is a feature on our audio platform where you just find someone who has done something extraordinary and good and kind to help other people. I've always been curious, A, how do you find these stories? Because it's frequent. It's not like you do one a month. There's a lot of them. And then which ones make the cut to become a podcast episode? That is a very good question. I find them all over the place. Sometimes I find them on Fox and Friends. They'll do an interview like we did. And I did an interview with the Boy Scouts. The, there was the big train crash uh, that happened uh, in Missouri recently the last couple of weeks. And I just interviewed some of the Boy Scouts that were in the crash and had the wherewithal to afterwards dust themselves off literally and help others. And I talked to the 14 years old and my boys are both well, my oldest is a Boy Scout. My youngest is going to get into it next year. But I understand how important that is for boys to learn those types of skills. Maybe not to get into a, an unbelievable, tragic accident like that, but to know how to you know, respond to something. And that's t- the type of things the Boy Scouts learn about. So I, I got to talk to them and a couple of the scout leaders and then a mom who basically got the text that there was a, a really bad car crash, a train wreck and that her boy was on that train. So that's, you know, obviously that's a tragic situation, but – The people rising to an occasion. Oh, my gosh. And I, I hear about it a lot during, you know, big weather events, the big hurricanes, the tornadoes. Obviously, you see the tragedy – and what happened to families, but then you also see the goodness of humanity, the strangers helping strangers. And that's what happened that day. There were a lot of strangers in the small town um, that came out and, and helped, uh, you know, help their fellow human beings out. And those are the type of stories we need now more than ever. And that is the type of juxtaposition that you'll see in a moment of profound tragedy where you will experience and witness the worst that life has to offer and in some ways the ugliest side of human nature and other things like that. And then you will see the very best where people come out of the woodwork, even if they've never done something heroic in their lives or living what they would consider ordinary lives, there's a moment where something clicks and whether it's a big, amazing gesture or just a simple act that goes a long way, that does come out of tragedy as well. And I know you like to try to focus on that as a way of uplifting people and communities. We have to. I think now more than ever, my gosh, you turn on the news, we're inundated with it. It's like, when does it end? The pandemic and, uh, you know, the tragedy and the economy and people just want to put food on their table. And I I get all that. But we also have to focus on why we're put on this earth. And that is to help fellow human beings, you know, whether it's opening the door for someone, buying a coffee when they can, uh, you know, a text, just a text from someone. I know that you text me and I smile. You text me pictures of your dog, Roy, and, and it brings a smile to my face. But that, you know, our our bodies respond chemically to that. That's important. Well, if on the way out of the studio today, I hold the door for you. <laughs> I'll do it if I can make the Dean's List. I think that's worth the trade-off. Now, I do want to ask you, Janice, because you mentioned big weather events. Not to bring this down too much, but the heat wave Mm. that we are seeing right now in some parts of America, but over in Europe, is just extraordinary. They put the map up on TV, I think, yesterday I saw, and some of the numbers are not 
numbers that you are accustomed to seeing over there. And they are certainly not accustomed to experiencing this kind of heat. Triple digits Fahrenheit, of course, which is for Americans. They're on the Celsius scale. But some of these places don't really use air conditioning as a matter of course. And it's more than just a fascination or a weather-related curiosity. Those type of temperatures can be dangerous, especially in locations not used to them. From your perspective, what do you send as a message, whether it's anyone listening over there or here at home, when temperatures do get that bad, especially in places that aren't air-conditioned or have the grid down or something like that? Well, you have to rely on your leaders, your leadership. You know, you have to have places to go, cooling centers. Uh, We've had heat waves here in the U.S. We have them happening right now. Texas, I think, Dallas has had no days of relief in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Now, they do experience very hot temperatures, but like you mentioned, when you talk about London, who's uh, their daytime high around this time of year is like low 70s, and they're 104. Yeah. That's crazy. Big outlier. Yes, and a lot of people don't have air conditioning. They are just – they – they don't have the wherewithal to deal with these types of temperatures, not just for one day, but several days. And that's why we're the seeing— The sustained yes, pressure is difficult. Yes. And we are seeing hundreds of deaths per day over there. Is it generally older folks who who can't handle a heat stroke or you know people who don't know how to get cool and remain safe? It's, I guess, all of the above. When I go on television and I see— Temperatures like 100 degrees, and with the humidity, it feels like 110. That's when your body shuts down. Your body is is trying to cool itself off, but when you've got so much humidity in the atmosphere that your body can't sweat normally, it suppresses it, right? It's just working overtime. So those who have heat-related illnesses or are susceptible to that, like the elderly, like the kids, like your pets, you have to take precautions. You have to bring them inside in the air conditioning. Uh, and so that's what I get concerned with is people that are not equipped to handle this type of weather. The humidity is what gets you. Yeah. And I know that people sometimes joke that it'll be, you know, 110 degrees out in the desert somewhere. And they say, but it's a dry heat. <laughs> and people laugh. It's like, hot is hot, but not really. Mm. Hot plus humid is metaphysically worse for you. Yes. I mean, if you talk to a doctor, that's what they will tell you because your body is trying to cool itself off by sweating. And when you're outside and there's humidity, your body is not functioning properly. Things start to shut down. Let's lighten things up, Janice Dean. And I want to ask you, with a transition from one event that you were recently covering for Fox & Friends, you were chatting with, among other people, the judges at the Westminster Dog Show. You enjoyed that. Then you yourself became a judge at a different type of dog show. That's right. We have not had you on this program since you teased that you were going to don the referee shirt mm-hmm. and be a judge at the 4th of July Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest on Coney Island. I have so many questions, and we'll get to them straight ahead. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back on The Guy Benson Show with Janice Dean here in studio, somewhat fresh off of her refereeing stint at the hot dog eating contest in Coney Island on the 4th of July. And Janice, as I said before the break, I have many curiosities. So 
What happened? Because I, I saw there was actual news out of it. The guy who always wins won. Joey right? Chestnut. And someone, was it like an attack or someone came up to try to disrupt? Protester. Yeah, what happened there? I mean, there were 40,000 people there at that event. That blows my mind. Right? I mean, I took a picture of it. I still can't believe it. I think it was historic for them. Where do they put all these people? It's on the corner of Surf and Stillwell and Coney Island, where they have it every year. Uh, Yeah, they just, they they come into that area where Nathan's has their 100-year-old restaurant, and then they line up around the streets, down the streets. It's really quite incredible. Um, yeah, there was a protester that got on stage. We still quite don't know how they got on stage, but Joey Chestnut is the goat of, of sports eating. He not only kept downing the hot dogs, he didn't miss a beat. He knew that there was somebody beside him. And when he told me he didn't realize it was a protester, he just thought it was somebody getting in his way. And he grows up with like three brothers. So he just grabbed him and put him in a headlock to like get him off the stage. Yeah, I saw some of this video and just kept eating. Yeah, he, he didn't drop one hot dog or p- part of bun. Well, the man's a professional. He, listen, I was really, and that's why he's kind of a <laughs> hero. I mean, to be able to do that and just like get, like throw this guy off the stage. Uh, I saw it in real time because I was I was watching him eat the hot dogs and counting them, uh, and it was kind of, it was jarring. You didn't know what was happening because there's it's intense. All of it is intense. The eating is intense. It's the counting is intense. Ten minutes. Ten minutes. And the thing is, it's not just like they they eat the hot dog and it's full glory. They do weird stuff with it to like. Get it down their throat. Yeah, down the old hatch. Yeah, that's right. So they eat, they put like four hot dogs in their mouth and then they like bunch the buns up in water and then like eat the buns like they're uh, like an apple. It's very strange. That's disgusting. (laughs) Just to be clear, I'm very glad that you were a part of this All-American event. It's so gross. I can't even really watch like replays of it, condensed highlights, because the highlights are things I don't want to see. Right, and I will tell you, I've done this job for 20 years. Not the judging. Not the judging, just like doing weird stuff for Fox and Friends. Yes. I couldn't sleep the night before because I was really nervous about like like getting sick myself watching this happen. That was my biggest concern, and I didn't eat all morning. I ate afterwards, (laughs) maybe a couple of hours afterwards, because I was terrified. Did you have a hot dog? No. I feel like that might be difficult to do after that spectacle. Agreed. I I might want just a little time away from hot dogs. I will say that I had a bite of a hot dog at around 6 a.m. for Fox and Friends. Just a bite. Because Nathan's does make incredible hot dogs. Oh, absolutely. There's this little snap when you you bite into the hot Mm -hmm. dog, and you can taste like the juices. It's so good. It's really good. Look, hot dogs are good. Yeah. It's one of those food-related products that I don't really want to know much about. Right. Just like McNuggets at McDonald's, I don't want to hear about what's in them. I'm sure there's some chicken. That's enough for me. I'm sure that there is something meat-ish in hot dogs. That's fine. And you put all the condiments on there, especially if it's, like, nice and grilled or whatever. Yeah. Good bun, little toasted bun or whatever. Fantastic. And I had several over that 4th of July week. I think after about... Two, maybe three. I'm done. I'm done. So your job, I'm, I'm still very curious about this. Your job in this capacity as a judge with the uniform and everything very official was to count. Were you assigned one competitor to yes. count each hot dog? Yes. And were there any regulations that you needed to be 
on the lookout for to make sure that there was not any cheating going on. A reversal of fortune is what gets you out of the contest, which ah, is, you know. That's I mean. it, though? Yeah, pretty much. Like, I mean, what if you're discarding pieces of bun or something? No, they wa- you can't do that either. They pretty much know that you, you have to prove – well, I don't know how you prove it. Uh, you have to see the whole hot dog, including the bun and whatever they do to try to – So you have to watch closely. You can't sort yeah, of – Well, they give you a more uh, seasoned judge to do this with. Okay. I see. Yeah. So I see. Somebody who has done this before, because if it was just me, guy, oh my gosh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. It. it the, the pressure is enormous, because we had. We didn't have Joey Chestnut. We had his his the guy he was competing against, who I think downed like over forty hot dogs, <laughs> and he sure. was very messy. Only forty. And uh, we miscounted, and he was mad. We did like we said forty three because again he picks them apart. He does all the like he doesn't eat them normally. Where you're like, okay, one hot dog. He ate one hot dog. No, he puts like four of the hot dogs in his mouth and then he he bunches up the the buns and puts them in water and like he's got it all over his his uh, Nathan's uh, bib? jersey. Is it a bib or no, I don't no, think it's just a like... bib. <laughs> you probably throw it out afterwards. Let's be honest. Um, but we got it wrong. We said forty three, and afterwards he was like. No, it wasn't. It was 47. Oh. Oh, yeah. And and so. Well, we, you got it wrong according to him. He was right. Because they are, there's a lot of backup, okay? I'm there as sort of like. A, a celebrity guest judge. Well, but still, I mean, I do. T- I still have to watch and count. Oh, yeah. You've got some authority. Right. But listen, let's be honest. They're not going to have me officially counting hot dogs. Because I, I think. I don't know if. They're going to have me back next year. Let's just say that. <laughs> well, when he was complaining, oh, he, he was, was like, oh, it was 47. Mad. You're off by four. You've been like, hey, back off, chief, <laughs> and make some of your own sunshine here. I don't like this attitude. He was very messy. Like, if there were – You I, could say this from a distance. If I could have taken points off for how messy this guy was, I would have <laughs> because it was all over the place. I'm sorry. Well, you had the experience. Yes. It sounds memorable. Very. And this is why we love Janice Dean. She has so many stories, some of which through the weeks and months and maybe years will be relayed on the brand new podcast, the Janice Dean podcast, foxnewspodcast.com. Wherever you get your podcast, you can search for it. First guest, Brian Kilmeade, yours truly, waiting in the wings. Oh, we're going to break some news. Oh, we are. And it is going to be a delight. I know. Janice, it is so good to see you. I, I love that you're here. And the next week, next week you're here too? I'm back next week. So we're trying to like make some plans. Oh, it's happening. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. And there might be drinks involved. What's Maybe that drinks. drink that you love? Oh, the gold rush? Or the long drink? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think we could maybe find some long drinks here in New York City. They're everywhere. We can get dinner. My only request, just not hot dogs this time. <laughs> All right. That's my one request. Fair? Absolutely fair. <laughs> Janice Dean, my guest. On the Guy Benson Show, great to see you. Woohoo! We'll be right back. clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show from New York City today. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. 
3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday and around the clock on demand for free on our podcast at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram. It's the same handle, at GuyBensonShow. So that's easy. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is crisp and delicious and refreshing and alcoholic, so 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. We were just talking about the Long Drink last hour with Janice Dean. TheLongDrink.com is their website. My buddy who runs the company having dinner with him tonight. Maybe we will share a Long Drink. We'll see. TheLongDrink.com for all of the information that you might need, including where it's available near you. And that list of places has been growing exponentially in the last couple of months. I want to begin our final hour today with Woke Tales. Woke Tales. I saw a few people sharing this story yesterday, and I finally clicked on it, and I eventually tweeted it from my own personal account, at Guy P. Benson, simply with the word, wow, because this is a wow story. It fits perfectly under the rubric of Woke Tales. It is a piece written on Substack, the Substack run by Wesley Yang. This is a guest author, a guest writer, who is an unnamed public school teacher in a very blue city, in a very blue state. That's all the information that we have. We know that it's a male. That's it. This person wants to remain anonymous, I think, for obvious reasons. That seems to be the case a lot of the time when people are blowing the whistle on some of this insanity, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, wokeness, racialism, CRT, whatever it is in the workplace, or in classrooms. They want people to know what's happening. They want to shed light on it. They don't want to face professional or personal repercussions because the enforcers of the orthodoxy are vindictive and fanatical. Now, what's interesting about this, and Wesley Yang, who runs the Substack, says he checked the guy out. It is legitimate. It's all authentic. This is not someone making up a story. This writer, this teacher, is not some closeted conservative who's flying sort of beneath the radar, doesn't want to let his true colors come out because it's a very sort of left-wing environment. This person is, by his own admission, his own description, a leftist himself. In fact, here's what he writes in his essay. Quote, I have to stop and make one thing very clear. I'm a leftist, like a big one. I hate capitalism. I support abortion on demand. I unironically use phrases like systems of oppression and the dominant culture. The last big paper I put together for my undergrad degree was critical race theory, for the love of God. I'm not the sort of person who can be easily dismissed as a conservative crank. But plenty of my fellow leftists are still willing to try on the grounds that anyone who thinks there might be any problem with DEI policies must necessarily be a slack-jawed MAGA troll. So he's laying out his bona fides as a progressive. A big leftist, he calls himself. A hater of capitalism, a big supporter of abortion. He uses a lot of the jargon himself. However, all that being said, and I think that actually makes this testimony, this whistleblowing, all the more powerful. Because it's not someone who's pointing the finger at the other side of the spectrum saying, look at the bad things that they're doing. This is someone on their side, on their team, so to speak. 
who nevertheless believes things are so crazy and out of control that people need to know the truth. He writes that some of his friends don't believe him when he tells them what's happening. Quote, I've had liberal friends of mine dispute to my face straightforward accounts of what my colleagues have said. They'll tell me school districts could never embrace such obviously unworkable policies. What else can I do except shrug my shoulders and say, I'm sorry, but yes, they can. They'll tell me I sound like one of those right-wing grifter types. What else can I do except sigh and tell them maybe the grifters have a point? So he goes through a number of examples. One of them that he leads with is this. He's a teacher, again, public school, blue city, blue state, himself a leftist. He's teaching summer school. There's a summer school program, and within the district, his district, they have an arrangement where teachers in the regular school year can essentially nominate students of theirs to get into the summer program, the summer school. Because if a teacher feels like they've got a student who's a problem, who's falling behind, who isn't performing, they can virtually automatically enroll them into this program that they haven't signed up for themselves. Now, you might imagine if this is something that the student or the parents may not be invested in, just because a teacher says, I think you need it, doesn't mean that kid is going to show up for summer school, especially if this is a, shall we say, less than committed student during the normal school year. Yes? Yes. Attendance, apparently, is a huge problem. But here's what's crazy. If a student is enrolled, not by his or her own volition, not due to the commitment of his or her family or parents, that enrollment still counts toward the class. And when the class is full, you cannot accept any more people into that class. And this has all been done, apparently, under the auspices of equity. So this teacher writes that there are students in the district whose parents desperately want them to be in the summer school program. They want to back up the teachers. They want to be faithful and show up and make sure that their student attends and gets the help they need, gets caught up academically, what have you. But because the classes are full, quote unquote, with kids who never show up, there's a waiting list of kids who actually want to be there, or at least whose families actually want them to be there. And they're not allowed to enroll the people off of the wait list just because the students who are technically enrolled never show. They are no-shows nearly all of, if not all of the time. This teacher writes, here's how it works in reality. Quote, the district actively embraced this policy as part of their larger equity and racial justice overhaul. They even bragged about doing so in public-facing materials. Their explicit position is that requiring attendance for any district program unfairly victimizes children of color, as does factoring in attendance to any student's grades during the regular school year. An administrator I spoke to seemed baffled that I would even ask, I'll let you know if any parents pull their kids out, he told me, but otherwise your class is technically full because they don't count attendance. Requiring attendance, checking attendance, using attendance as a metric for grades, they've decided is racist and discriminatory, and therefore they don't do it. So even if there are kids enrolled in summer school who show up zero days, that is a place that cannot be replaced by someone who actually wants to be there for equity. 
This teacher writes, as an extra dose of insanity, we can't even request that the parents of non-attending students remove their child from the program, thus making space for others. Doing so, I was told, could make them feel disrespected or communicate to them that their children are not welcome. He writes that with this summer school program reaching its halfway point, quote, the number of students, listen to this, the number of students who have never once attended but remain on the roster is still larger than the number of students on the wait list. There are more kids who never show up ever than who are on the wait list, but those kids cannot get unwaitlisted and into the classrooms where their parents want them because of this totally bonkers policy where someone or someones clearly have twisted themselves into pretzels to decide that if attendance is a relevant factor at all, that is racist, that is injustice, and therefore they just won't do it, no matter how much sense it makes, no matter how fair it actually would be, no matter what the well-being of children actually requires, they don't care about that. They care about their precious Diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI policies, i.e. wokeness, so they can demonstrate to, I don't know, their fellow educators how pristinely progressive they are. Even if it's hurting the students who need help. And the teacher says, on a regular basis, there are so-called full classrooms with four or five students there. That's it. And a bunch of them who aren't eligible to show up because they're waitlisted. He mentions a few other examples of things that he has personally witnessed in his capacity as a teacher in this blue city in a blue state. At one point, they were brainstorming how to get more students of color enrolled in AP classes, advanced placement, the highest level in high school, how to get more of them involved in those classes. And one of the other teachers said it is actually white supremacy to even have that goal. Because AP is some sort of white supremacist power structure and to try to shoehorn students of color into that is white supremacy. So I guess that idea was shot down. They think they're helping these kids by telling them it's too racist to try to figure out and incentivize a way for them to get into advanced placement. It is just totally backwards. And he writes that no one objected. It was just sort of this quiet submission in the room. There was another moment, he explains, where they were debating a new schedule for the students. And one of the big objections to the new schedule was Based on that framework, they would not actually get to complete the entire curriculum. They would run out of time. And one of the colleagues of this teacher said, quote, that might actually be a good thing because most of our students are white and their test scores dropping slightly would help shrink the racial achievement gap in our state. He's quoting One of his fellow teachers who say, oh, maybe it would be good if we didn't teach all the material to the kids because too many of them are white. So if they struggle more and their test scores come down, then at least the gap on racial outcomes academically will shrink. It reminds me of Margaret Thatcher going after the Labour Party, the leftists in the UK in her final questions time for the prime minister in 1990, I believe it was, where someone got up and admitted from the other side of the aisle that she had achieved a lot of things as prime minister, but the wealth gap had grown bigger. And she said, well, the gap doesn't matter. What matters is, are people overall better off or not? She said, you, I'm paraphrasing, you, the Labor Party, would prefer the poor to be poorer 
so long as the rich are also less rich. So you'd rather have people at a lower income level but closer to each other, less of a wealth gap. That'd be your preference as opposed to everyone being wealthier but the gap being bigger. That's the mentality here, except it's on race. You would rather white students do worse in this case, not teach them what they need to achieve at the highest level because at least their test scores will suffer and the gap between them and these other students from other ethnicities would shrink. It's literally pulling people down. Rather than finding a way to raise everyone up and do a better job educating everyone, this teacher admitted that based purely on the color of skin, it would be good to reduce the performance of white students. How that helps anyone is beyond me, but this is what this teacher writing this piece at Substack witnessed. Here's how he concludes the piece. Now, do these anecdotes, no matter how explicitly I describe them, Sound like something out of James Lindsay's fever dreams? He's a conservative activist, very conservative. Yes, he writes. Are these things that did, in fact, happen? Also, yes. I just don't know how you get both of those facts across to the fairly large segment of the American population who believes it could only ever be one or the other. Like I said before, this guy writes, I'm a leftist myself. I have a real and abiding commitment to racial justice and education. Do I like having to make these same points? As pundits who want me kicked out of the classroom? Of course not. But it's precisely because I think racism and poverty are so rampant in this nation and our obligation to respond so overwhelming that I can't keep pretending these ridiculous DEI schemes aren't hurting the children we owe so much. They are. It's happening right now. I'm writing about these issues because I want to grab anyone who might listen and tell them, yes, things really are as bad as you've heard even if the people you've heard it from can be absolutely nuts. These stories sound crazy because they are crazy. This is someone who would probably disagree with me on almost everything it sounds like. And yet what he is personally experiencing as a public school teacher, funded, of course, by our tax dollars in a blue state, in a blue city, what he sees on the job day in and day out is so bananas to him as a card-carrying leftist, that he feels like he needs to speak out. And one of the biggest problems he runs into are fellow progressives and liberals who might agree that it's crazy, but it sounds so crazy they don't believe it's real. And his bottom line is, yes, things really are as bad as you've heard, which is why we cannot allow the left to gaslight us on wokeness and CRT and all this stuff that is always a myth, right? Oh, it's just... From the fever swamps of the right wing until concrete examples, indisputable examples arrive, and then they either ignore it or tell us, well, actually, that's good. And they just pivot on a dime. I think it's useful when someone within their own tribe calls this stuff out. It's not just Guy Benson on Fox News saying it. I'm reading his words. Fascinating stuff. Frightening stuff. But we need to link arms with people like this person to at least mitigate some of the madness. And that's Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Back right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Did you see this today? 16 members of Congress per the U.S. Capitol Police were arrested during a demonstration outside of the Supreme Court. I think on abortion. 
So some of these Dems went over there and joined a big protest and got themselves arrested. Obviously on purpose. It's a stunt, right? This was their virtue signaling, look, we care, we're angry, we're with you. We're going to get arrested. It's actually something that they do on the left, on the hard left, the activist left. It's like a badge of honor getting arrested. In this case, by the U.S. Capitol Police, who they all venerate. And they're like, oh, but also please arrest me. So I need to get that added to my rap sheet to show how down for the cause that I am. So there were members of the squad there, of course. There is absolutely amazing video of AOC getting arrested or at least marched away or escorted away. It's the perfect angle. I saw this on Twitter. Someone's filming it, and it looks like she's got her hands behind her back in cuffs as she's being led away. But then, based on the angle, you can see there are no handcuffs. She has her hands back there pretending to be handcuffed for the visuals. <laughs> and then at one point, there are people like shouting out to her and she forgets that she's pretending to be arrested. So she raised the power fist for just a minute. Whoop, then back behind her back to the fake handcuffs. <laughs> oh, that is good. And Ilhan Omar did the same thing too. Hands behind the back, escorting herself away. And then out comes the power fist. Fantastic. Shades of AOC in all white, weeping outside the kids in cages, but it was just a parking lot. Remember that? She understands visuals, but maybe she doesn't understand that there are people with cameras from different angles that can show the context, which looks ridiculous. Oh, slow clap, AOC. She should have just whispered to the cop, please handcuff me. It's for street cred, please. (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. That's a new one, but a good one from AOC. Who else? The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour resumes after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show. Earlier in the program, back in our first hour, we caught up with our colleague and friend Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent. A lot to discuss with him including the president's recent overseas trip to the Middle East. Here's part of that conversation with Fox's Peter Ducey. There are at least disputes about, number one, did the Saudis agree to something on pumping and producing more oil? And then two, was there some sort of a confrontation on Khashoggi and human rights and the murder of that journalist? It doesn't seem like we are getting... Uh, similar answers from the two sides. And that little back and forth, the sniping has continued even after the president left Saudi Arabia. What can you tell us? Well, it mostly happened uh, right as the president took off. So the Saudis waited until the president was unable to respond right away. uh, And they came out to say, uh, yeah, we never heard him bring up the murder of Khashoggi. And uh, yeah, we, uh, I, I'm not so sure that I heard him bring up oil production when he had all the Gulf leaders in the room either. And those are both things the president uh, suggested or basically said that he did. And so uh, I, I tried with the press secretary yesterday. She was not in any of these meetings, so she didn't hear uh, with her own ears any of this, but she did say that uh, we should just trust the president here. Okay, so the official line from the president is he did condemn the Saudis for the killing of Khashoggi, and he did secure some assurances on oil production from the Saudis. That's what he is. That's the line from the White House, yeah. Okay. 
is there significance if the Saudis say neither of those things happen? Some of that could just be posturing. Some of it could be trolling. For example, on Khashoggi, maybe he said something and they're like, oh, we didn't hear that because they didn't want to hear that. Maybe it was said and they're pretending otherwise. But the oil piece of it certainly seems to be pretty important because that was kind of the whole point of the trip, right? You're not going to show up to the so-called pariah state that you'd called out very aggressively, vociferously on the campaign trail, fist bump the guy that you said has blood on his hands, the pariah himself, if you will, all for nothing. You, you want to get something out of it. And the Saudis are saying what you came here for, we didn't agree to. That seems newsworthy. I, I guess when will we know who's right? Well, we already know that the Saudis are saying, hey, we're already – more or less, you know, if you piece together what MBS announced publicly, uh, he said we're almost at maximum capacity right now with our oil production capacity. We can go up to maybe 13 million barrels a day. They're at 12 million barrels a day now. But that's it. And that's something that we know – President Biden had whispered to him at the G7 right. in the Bavarian Alps like two weeks ago by Macron. And so I, maybe that is a, a hard thing for the president to hear, but he had to have known that it was coming. And so I, it's going to be time to look elsewhere. We know that there are lots of places in the in the country. I know a lot of Republicans want the president to look here in the United yeah, States inward. for answers. Right, inward. Uh, but it doesn't seem like... Saudi Arabia is going to solve all the problems if they can solve any, if they want to. Uh, Because the other thing is when MBS says, oh, yeah, we can expand uh, up to 13 million a day, uh, that he doesn't he he never said that they would do that right away. And they've had a plan to do that over the next couple of years for a long time. Uh, We never heard him say that they were going to speed it up just to do Joe Biden a favor. I guess we shall see. Meanwhile, there is the Israel swing on the trip. How can you describe that, Peter? Because uh, we recall that there was a pretty icy relationship between President Obama and the Israelis, and then a much, much warmer relationship with President Trump. The Abraham Accords, those peace deals were huge. Now you've got President Biden, who in this respect is still more of an old school Democrat. It seemed like that was relatively low drama. The Israelis and the Saudis and the U.S. all have an interest in countering Iran, although The U.S. seems much more interested in appeasing and offering concessions to Iran than the Israelis or the Saudis and and some of their Arab partners. How would you categorize that portion of the trip? Any news in your mind out of that? Well, I think the news is that uh, the president went there and, uh, you know, when we're there covering these trips, we're trying to figure out what what is happening. Like, what's the point of any of this? And as the president was standing in the West Bank, he said— uh, you know, I realize now that uh, the ground's not ripe for peace talks. And it's like, then why are we here? I know they want to talk about Iran, but you're not going to come to the Middle East and at least uh, try to get all sides to the table uh, to negotiate. And I know that uh, a deal, any kind of a peace deal is a long ways off, but you're not going to go and at least like try yeah. And so I, I think that the newsiest thing wound up being something that did not happen, which is uh, just no announcement about anything. <laughs> yeah, it's so so the news was a pointed lack of news, although growing concerns about Iran, 
They're now saying, some members of their regime, that they have the ability to build a nuclear weapon if they want to. Uh, that was the concern all along. Obama's nuclear deal was not going to stop them from doing that. Biden's rumored deal that has never gone through was even weaker. So that's another space that we're keeping an eye on for sure. Meanwhile, Peter, the president hops back on Air Force One, flies across the ocean, and comes home to a very turbulent political situation for him. The polls are terrible. People are very unhappy. Inflation, gas prices, I mean, you name it. Things are just racking up. He's got approval ratings in the 30s. Right track, wrong track is even worse, I mean, by by a long shot. And I've been kind of interested, and I touched on this earlier in the show, Peter, by the White House and sort of their spin team, the communications shop, in the last few days, trying to really lean into some uh, some credit taking, some triumphalism or getting close to triumphalism on gas prices because they've come down. They're still shockingly elevated and much, 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 much higher than when this team took over. But because they're not as high and the national average is no longer over five dollars a gallon, they're like, you know, breaking out the champagne bottles and celebrating and basically demanding credit and gratitude from the American people. And I'm just trying to square that and the memos that they're putting out and what they're saying from the podium, trying to square all of that with their repeated assertions over the last couple months that the president has no control over these things. It's not fair to expect him to be able to move the price of gasoline and that really the driving factor is Putin and greed of oil companies. Did, did did that go away? Is there a summer holiday from the greed? Did Biden somehow find a magic wand where he can bring stuff down? And will the magic wand get broken in half and then disappear if they come back up? I'm just trying to figure out how they will explain some of this stuff, the gyrations, based on their own standards that they've been using. Well, now they're saying, uh, yeah, Putin was terrible. Uh, and he still is, but uh, we released some oil from the strategic reserves, and we told those those mean old gas station owners that they need to lower their prices. <laughs> right. And so, so they did, I, you know. Right. Yeah. So they did. So so now now we're in control. I call it a magic wand if you want. Um, but Kate Pettingfield, the communications director, has a memo out today where she says, right there in plain text, President Biden's plan is working. And so, you know, just because they say that, uh, I guess it's up to the, the serious economists that uh, said inflation was going to be temporary 365 days ago uh, to to weigh in on that. But I, I don't know. I, it's, you know, it's tough because we get back from these trips and you want to hear more from the president, but no public events yesterday and no public events today. Like, it's while an all empty schedule. Fresh, yeah, we want to know from him. And it's great that they had Corrine Jean-Pierre go out, and she's got John Kirby with her today at the briefing. Um, she had Jared Bernstein with her yesterday. That's great. But we want to hear from the president so that he can explain, like, what's going to happen next? Because, okay, gas is down a little bit over 30 days in a row. Good trend, but it's got a long way to go. Long way. Uh, so what else are we going to do? Yeah, just and, to— just to break even to where they were when they came in on gas prices. And I was just quoting a Washington Post story, Peter, in the last segment, where some of the experts in the industry say that in September or October, you could see an increase in gas prices again. So sort of like a second shockwave 
My full discussion with Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent, available online at GuyBensonShow.com, also on that free podcast, the entire show, every day, on demand, for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch, and it's a very special day. Here on the show, we talked about Christine's birthday yesterday. The day has arrived. We have something of a surprise that we will bring you right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Tuesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. And as we mentioned on the program yesterday, today is producer Christine's birthday. She is 41 years old today. Happy birthday to Christine. And I know, Christine, we don't really have a lot of time in the home stretch today because you are racing off to go to the Backstreet Boys concert tonight. And I hope that you have a great time, you and one of your best friends, one of your many best friends, not your husband, who you did not invite at all to the concert. He was a little salty about that. However, Christine, that did not stop Bobby from contacting me. He texted me yesterday. I rarely hear from him. So I got a little note there. I was like, okay, this is interesting. What's this all about? He apparently has been working on a little project involving some of your quote-unquote greatest hits, whatever that means. And he was wondering, would we be interested in hearing it or playing it on the air for your birthday? And I just said yes. I have no idea how long it is. I have no idea what it entails. I have not heard it. But we have it in our possession. Should I play it? No. And that's my birthday wish. Well, too bad. Because your birthday wish of going to the Backstreet Boys... You get your wish on this one, but not here. We have to hear what Bobby, your husband, has made a tribute to his wife on her 41st birthday. Again, I have no idea what is about to happen. So let's just hit it and enjoy. Well, thank you, and I look forward to this. A very happy birthday. If you don't understand this, I can't explain it to you. Oh, my goodness. Happy wife, happy life. I'm a pretty easygoing, chill girl. <laughs> I'm a woman. Woman. I think, Christine, right, you were, you're a boomer? No. No, I'm not. I'm a millennial. <laughs> you are not a millennial. Yes, I am. I was born in 1981. <laughs> it's your 41st birthday. Women, it just goes pretty much downhill at a certain age. I'm not there yet. Just so you know. It's your 41st birthday. I mean, I'm a certified Jersey Italian girl. I know what's good pizza. It's your 41st birthday. Happy birthday. Okay, you ready? I'm being made fun of. I got a few songs in, got a couple kamikaze shots, felt like I was in college again. What is a pirate's favorite letter? Is it R? You might think it's R, but his first love is the C. Mom, they're spreading lies about Reagan in history. Get me out of here. I don't know if you know this guy, but I was a varsity cheerleader in high school. Back in the 80s, as a kid, yeah, I teased that hair. Of course, that's what you did. Oh, I'm so good at that. My freak out was all for nothing. 
Are you surprised by that? As uh, my therapist Roy says, that's called spiraling. Wow. You really are truly my best friend. I've been saying it for years. But you truly, really are. Ugh. Just fantastic. I don't think it was a coincidence that Bobby snuck in there the happy wife, happy life slogan, because I think that's probably kind of how he lives. And that was really amazing. There were some of those clips I'd forgotten about. Christine, are oh, you I, embarrassed? Are you proud? I, all of the above? I just want to know how he found all of those. I mean, I, I know he does listen to the show, but... He does. Yeah, he must a, keep notes. Wow. He must take, like, little notes in a journal where he says, here's the date and time. I'm going to go back and I'm going to get it in order to make a montage like that. Because some of those were from pretty long ago. It's not like that was all from the last month or so. He's been planning this. He's been accumulating those sound bites for months. It's impressive. Some would say impressive. Others might say embarrassing. Gosh, when you hear all of the greatest hits of yourself. Hmm. Well, that's only really the tip of the iceberg, honestly. That's just, we only had two minutes. Was that roughly two minutes it sounded like? We had to cut it down, I would imagine, from the original half-hour tribute. <laughs> like We don't really have quite enough time. We can't do two full segments of Christine. Let's limit it to two minutes if possible. And that was just, you know, the, the A-plus level stuff. Wow. Well, thank you to my husband, I think. <laughs> I don't even Are know you what feeling to say. more guilty about not inviting him to the concert tonight? No, that did not make me feel guilty at all. No, I I will say this and I'm going to thank him. Thank you for not putting anything about Carousel in there. You know, that was a glaring omission. I mean, how can there not be anything about Carousel, the deceased pony that you had killed? How could there be nothing about you getting mugged by a mime in Europe? There are lots of things that were missing. You know, maybe we should do we should commission a more comprehensive one of these for next year. I'll keep that in mind. Dan. Wyatt, anything to add, anything to wish Christine on her birthday? Yes, Christine. Happy, happy, happy birthday. Aw, thank well, you, YY. That was so stirring and heartfelt. Mm. I would Dan? like I, I would like to add a very happy birthday to Christine, my studio pal, who I've learned a lot about through the show and through that montage of things I haven't heard before, so that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of this started probably before Dan joined the show. Some of those clips. All Thank right, Christine. You, Dan. What are you looking forward to the most tonight at the Backstreet Boys concert? The number one thing you can't wait for. Um, I th- I just love. Don't you love the very first song when they first come out? You know, like any concert, but like the first. Like the opening, I'm ready for that. I hope I don't. I'm excited for everything, honestly. Like I could list off 20 songs. I'm excited to hear. Um, I've been doing my research. I think the set list is 28, and then there's two encores. I'm just I'm ready for it all. I'm so so excited for tonight. I really am. The lights are gonna go down, and you're gonna lose your mind, and it should be a lot of fun. Christine, happy birthday. Have a good time. Be safe. Be responsible, please. We need you back here tomorrow on the Guy Benson Show. Have a blast. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. And I should have taken off. You mean tomorrow? Yes. Yeah, there's still time. You would have to call out sick, quote unquote. 
oh, yes, uh, she, she got it might be COVID or it might just be laryngitis and a hangover. Hopefully you'll be here, though. We got to run. The Guy Benson Show is back here tomorrow. You can hear all about it on the program. Same time, same place, as always. Thank you for listening. Have a fantastic night. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.